everyone. Welcome to episode 48 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So this week, we'll do a quick roundup of the usual list of vulnerabilities for the past week, and then we'll dive straight into a chat that I had with Joe about uh, the OWASP Top 10 Cloud Security Practices, and this was in light to a recent hack that happened uh, to healthcare providers that were using a bunch of different cloud services and hadn't really secured them, as we'll see. All right, so let's get straight into it. So the first uh, vulnerability I want to look at was in E2FS progs. So this is a source package that contains a bunch of different binaries or that generates a bunch of different binaries uh, that are used for operating on file system images. So if you've ever had uh, to FSCK your file system, you'll know that uh, that comes from this package. And in this case, uh, Cisco Talos, uh, the threat assessment group, they discovered a vulnerability which was an out of bounds write to a heap allocated buffer, which could happen uh, due to um, mishandling quota support in X4 file system. So this is the kind of thing that you might be able to trigger via a specially crafted X4 partition. Uh, and so then, you know, if you went to perform an FSCK on that or something like that, uh, you could then get this out of bounds right and it would be controlled by the uh, malicious file system. So you could possibly get code execution as a result, but that's been fixed for uh, all of the supported releases, which is precise for both precise and trusty extended security maintenance, Xenial, Bionic and Disco. Up next, we've got an update for SDL 2.0. So this is the uh, library that's used for handling uh, multimedia in a lot of different game engines and that kind of thing. Uh, five different CVEs that were fixed for Xenial, Bionic and Disco. Uh, three of these were a different heap-based buffer overreads. So this is the kind of thing that would only result in a crash and likely denial of service. Uh, there was one heap-based buffer overwrite. You could then possibly get a code execution if you could manipulate the heap in the right way, or you could at least cause a crash and denial of service as well. And finally, there was an integer overflow that would lead to a small sized memory allocation, but then a large sized memory copy into that. So you'd get a heap-based buffer overflow again. Uh, so yeah, they've all been fixed for SDL 2.0. Uh, next up is a bunch of vulnerabilities in the kernel. So we've released kernel updates for uh, the Disco kernel, which is uh, 5.0, and that's used as the hardware enablement kernel for uh, Bionic. We've also got updates for the Bionic kernel itself, which is also used for the Xenial hardware enablement kernel, and that's 4.14. And finally, we've got updates for the Xenial kernel itself, which is 4.4. And I'll go through these in that order. So for the Disco kernel, there were 18 different CVEs that were addressed. Uh, there was an out-of-bounds read in the Atheros 6KL driver. So if you are using an Atheros Wi-Fi chip, you'll likely got this. Uh, this was possible to be triggered remotely uh, from the network and could therefore cause a crash and denial of service to your host kernel. Uh, there was a fix for the Bluetooth knob KNOB attack, uh, which we've mentioned in previous episodes as well. Uh, there was also fixes for uh, crashes that could result from malicious USB audio devices. So uh, there was one where it was an infinite recursion, which would occur when parsing device descriptors if you had multiple identical device descriptors uh, that was advertised by the USB device. Uh, also, there was an out-of-bounds read if it specified an invalid input pin. So they've both been fixed. Uh, there was an out-of-bounds read in the QLogic uh, QEDI iSCSI driver. And finally, a couple that I covered back in episode 46 one of these was a possible code execution attack, which you might be able to trigger via a null pointer to your reference in the Bluetooth UART driver. Now, I say code execution attack, however, this is mitigated by default in Ubuntu. The idea here is that uh, there's a function pointer and it is null, but it, uh, so as a function pointer, if that then gets executed, you're going to execute the code that's at address zero because it's null. And in Ubuntu, we have uh, the mmap min address. 
uh, kernel variable essentially uh, that is set to a non-zero value which means that you can't map uh, a page at the zero address and that then means that this just turns into a segmentation fault so a um, denial of service attack instead of actually a code execution attack but if you had changed that so if perhaps you had allowed and that min address to be zero, which uh, I believe used to be used in uh, for various Wine, um, so various Windows applications that wanted to run under Wine. If you had set that, uh, you are then unfortunately opening yourself up to code execution attacks for these kind of, um, you know, what should really just be a denial of service. However, that has been fixed, so either way, you're safe. And there was also a denial of service in the Intel Wi-Fi driver that I mentioned back in episode 46. So that was where a malicious client would be able to knock a peer off the network by sending a particular frame. So they've all been fixed for the kernel. Uh, we've got an update, as I said, for the Bionic kernel, which is the Xenial hardware enablement kernel. So just two different CVEs there. Uh, both of these were for the XFS file system. There was a use after free that might be able to be triggered from a malicious file system image. Uh, so you might be able to get code execution if you can uh, you know, corrupt uh, the heap in the right way. Uh, but likely it's a crash and therefore denial of service is the impact. And finally, there was also a CPU-based denial of service. So uh, you could trigger this potentially if you could get a, an error return from the change group uh, system call uh, if there was an error due to it being out of quota. So yeah, they've all been fixed for the XFS file system in Bionic. And lastly, there's an update to the Xenial kernel. Uh, there were 11 different CVEs that were fixed here by the kernel team. Uh, most of these I've actually covered in the two previous roundups, so I won't go into details, but they are all listed in the show notes if you want to find out more details. And last up, we've got an update for ClamAV. Uh, these were fixed for all of the supported releases, so Precise and Trusty Extended Security Maintenance, Xenial, Bionic, and Disco. Two different CVEs here. Uh, these were all fixed by updating ClamAV to the latest upstream version, which is 0.101.4 for all of these supported releases. And so we've even backported that, as I said, to the extended security maintenance releases as well. And so both of these uh, were out of bound reads when handling crafted uh, either bzip2 images or, uh, sorry, bzip2 files or zip files. Now, uh, in the case of bzip2 itself, we had fixed that earlier in the bzip2 uh, package in Ubuntu in episode 38. However, ClamAV, uh, particularly in older releases, uh, well, ClamAV used to vendor in a copy of bzip2. And so, yeah, we've had to fix that as well for ClamAV directly. And uh, that's it for CVEs and fixes for the last week. So as I mentioned at the start, I've now got a chat that Joe and I had earlier in the week. Hey, Alex. Hey, Joe. How are you doing this week? I'm really good. How are you going? I'm fantastic. We're back with another week of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. And um, I'm just wondering, what are, the, what are some of the things you've been, you've been working on this week? Uh, so for Ubuntu, I've been investigating uh, Python 3 uh, hardening. We've had some people report that um, it doesn't look as hardened as they expect it to. So I've been trying to investigate what's going on there. And uh, I don't know. I should have thought of this before I started talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, to the, to the Python 3 thing, um, I, I, had, um, I had followed along uh, at some of your emails about this. And it looks like uh, some of the choices we made were balancing security and performance, which is always a problem in the, in the security world, right? Like just figuring out what can we do to keep secure and also um, make sure that we're also performing at an at a acceptable level. Like I think some of the, what the uh, side channel mitigations really impact performance if all of them are applied. So you have to pick and choose what the best thing is. Yep. 
yeah, there's, uh, I think there's a website, I think it's called Make Linux Great Again, and it has uh, the kernel command line arguments that you need to put in to disable all the side channel mitigations because, yes, it does uh, have a reasonable performance impact. Uh, and yes, like you said, that's true for a lot of things. Um, and in particular, some of these hardening features uh, and actually some of the upstream projects like um, Kernel Self-Protection Project, a lot of their work uh, is focused on, say, backporting features from the GR security patch set. Uh, but they often run into problems where those things have performance impact and then they need to find a way to make that palatable for the mainline kernel, which maybe isn't as uh, happy just to have, yes, a huge performance impact for what might be seen as a more negligible security game. So, yeah, definitely. Very cool. How about yourself? What do you mean up to, Joe? Well, um, you know, <laughs> as a director, I... Um relish any time I can get hands on keyboard to get into my terminal. So um, I, I've i been playing with snaps a lot recently because um, snaps are just an awesome way to package applications, especially for me. I do a lot of stuff in Python, so I don't always want to have to tell somebody to install all these other modules to make something work. So we have a global team. For instance, Alex, what time is it for you right now? It's 1.30 p.m. And it is almost 9 p.m. for me right now. So when I want to schedule a meeting, particularly with you or anyone else on the team, um, I would usually go to Google and Google, what time is it here, right? Or what time is it here if it's this time in mountain time? So the team has written some bash scripts because I'm not the first person on the team to try to solve this problem. But I like Python. I like Snaps. I wanted to do some more with Snaps. So um, I also tend to love the Plotly module. Um, so I wanted to be able to create a map which dropped pins where everybody on the team was and I could just um, mouse over and see what, what the time was for them, as well as just print a, a command line table, um, and then package it up as Snap and get it accepted to the Snap Store, um, which was all of like, I don't know, I did I wrote the app and published the Snap in the course of like a morning. Um, and you can install it with Snap install team time. Um, and you just make a little CSV of um, everybody in your, in your team's uh, name and location. Um, but for me, it was solving the problem of tracking everybody's time and also just playing more with snaps and learning more about um, uh, interfaces and slots, et cetera, and what things I needed to grant to make a um, X11 app, et cetera. So it was pretty cool. Um, yeah, so that's what I've been up to this week. Cool. So in security this week, uh, we we're going to have a chat about the OWASP uh, top 10 recommendations for cloud security. But that was inspired by a recent hack uh, that you'd seen around uh, some healthcare details. Yeah, there was a, um, a company that had a database of, it looked like uh, people applying to companies and then internal communications and emails um, around healthcare. And so um, there was PII, it was unencrypted, there was no password, and it was on the public internet in the cloud. I mean, what on. could go wrong? Yeah, obviously. I mean, your know, databases are hard. You have to learn how to use um, select statements. Um, you never know what the table is like until you type describe. Um, so uh, um, they had a bunch of a bunch of really crazy material. So apparently, not only was the database acceptable, but it was also it, it was accessible and it was read write. So you could delete stuff. You could modify stuff. Um, I mean, I think what we have to talk about is obviously the war game scenario where someone goes in and changes their grade or changes their pay, if that's how they track. I don't know if that was in there, but I totally would change that. Um, raises for everybody. Yeah. Um, 
And then uh, in one, I guess in one document, a manager said um, there was a news article where one of the nurses got arrested. Um, and then they had another employee and checked them, um, checked to see if they'd ever worked there. And there were social security numbers, et cetera. So it's just all a mess. But that's not the whole point of this. Things happen because things are in the cloud and they're not protected. Because for some reason, people think the cloud provider does all the security for them. And that's just not the case, right? You wouldn't in your internal network, well, I assume, not, if you're standing up this website or this application in your internal network, you'd have a firewall in front of it. You'd have ACLs. You'd have um, all sorts of different things. But people just click that, you know, deploy a new VM button and forget that security is a problem. Yeah. Um, so how do we fix cloud security? Um, there's a whole bunch of ways. And I'm just a huge fan of OWASP. So um, OWASP is the Open Web Application Security Project. And so most people know of OWASP for their top 10. And that is the top 10 um, vulnerabilities for web applications. And that discusses cross-site scripting, SQL injection, poor authentication, et cetera. They have a really uh, useful one on top 10 IoT vulnerabilities too. But it looks like they have a draft, which hasn't been updated, or maybe I just couldn't find it, of um, cloud security that I think is total, even though this draft is from a few years back, I don't think the challenges have changed. Um, they have their 10 subjects, uh, obviously, because it's top 10, that, that they, they walk you through. So um, we'll put it in the show notes. It's OWASP.org. Um, and then look for cloud top 10, or you can just go to Google and type OWASP top 10 cloud security. Um, so one thing they talk about is accountability. And that's an important thing. You know, who owns the service? You know, go ahead and find out who owns it, make that person in, or that group in charge of scanning it, making sure it's locked down, et cetera. Um, they talk about user identity federation. So don't have, you know, it's basically your single sign-on model. Don't have special users just for the cloud. Work it into your overall um, uh, uh, single sign-on. And then regulatory compliance, which is just awesome. I know as security people, it's easy to poo-poo certifications. Like, oh, I don't think that's, I'm just checking boxes. Well, these are these are all, start. I, I assume they're all started with good intentions, right? They want to have you get to a better security place. And, um, this compliance can help you lock down your data. If you think about um, GDPR, that's an awesome compliance that had people um, really relook at their overall security. And then, you know, PCI, DSS, that's an amazing one for credit card um, security that you can apply to other realms. Um, then there's uh, business continuity and you know, your BCP, DR, business continuity and resiliency planning. Um, it kind of goes out saying, don't have your data in one place, but it deletes it, you know, how do you get back online, et cetera. Um, there's user privacy and secondary use of data. So, you know, are you using this data for data mining? Are you using it for other purposes? You know, how do you control access to that? Um, there's service and data integration, kind of makes sense, you know, how do things connect? Um, how do you protect that connection? Um, Multi-tenancy and physical security. So that is, you know, if you have a shared cloud environment, is it a shared database? I helped out a, um, an organization a few years ago, not long enough ago to make this make sense, but they had 52 applications. And of those 52 applications, they had one named database user. So every single app connected as the same user to the database. So you compromise one, you've not compromised them all. So that's one example. And physical security, actually, you know, if it's the cloud, 
if you're going with an accredited cloud vendor, they usually have fairly good physical security. Um, actually, I would say beyond fairly good. Um, and then there's instance analysis and forensic support. This is super important. If you have data in the cloud, you need to be doing logging. You need to have the ability to export your VM. How do you get data to do an investigation if you've been compromised? Um, it depends if it's infrastructure as a service or software as a service or platform as a service. There are some platforms you can't get data out of. So if there's, um, or you can only get a limited amount of data out of. So before you sign a contract with one of these different as a service services, um, find out, <laughs> it's kind of funny, uh, find out if, um, if you've got the ability to um, get raw data for an investigation to help out um, your incident responders. And then um, non-production environment exposure, which was an interesting one. Um, this could be whether or not you have a test scenario and what kind of data or test deployment, what is in the test deployment. I've noticed over and over again when I've done um, uh, uh, assessments of companies, they'll set up like a beta or a test site and they have real data in it. And they just don't secure it like the production site because that takes too long and they need to be quick because they need to test, et cetera. Well, don't use production data. Um, or if you have to use some data set, make sure it is completely anonymized and not in a reverse hashable way, right? You just make sure it's all, um, all fake data that you're working with but that can simulate your real loads. Make sure it's protected like your actual production environment. Um, and that's kind of a good, there's also this other certification body out there called the Cloud Security Alliance, the CSA. Um, I think the book is free. It's like 300 pages. Um, I went through it a few years ago and I thought it was a fantastic resource if you're getting into securing the cloud. Um, they have a test you can take. I don't think it's that much money so you could be cloud security certified. But um, I think the CSA is also another good resource besides OWASP. Um, and then I think like AWS is a hardening guide. Everybody, every different, you know, GKE is going, et cetera. So all these companies have them. Just follow them. Um, I droned on about that, Alex. Um, sorry, I didn't look at a word in edgewise. No, that's good, Joe. You, uh, it, it's a really important topic. Uh, as more and more things are moving to the cloud, uh, we've got engineers who are very used to, uh, to you know, being in a lot of control of what they're doing and you know, of the physical machines they're using. And as you say, when it goes to the cloud and you perhaps lose the ability to directly get good forensics or um, you know, even the level of monitoring that you might be used to for your own locally deployed stuff, uh, you know, it's a very different paradigm. And so certainly something you need to uh, skill up on and you know change the way that you think of it because uh, whilst it's your data and your applications it's not necessarily your um, your machines that you're running on so a different game yeah exactly and it's um it rarely is your machine and it's rarely a private machine yeah, if you're in like a web hosting environment if it is a, as a servant you know some sort of infrastructure service is your machine but you know it's it needs to be care. It needs the same care and feeding as if it were inside your your data center. You're just no longer in charge of the cabling. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, well, cool. Uh, you know, I, I have something I can ask our listeners for. So, in um, in 1910 and 2004, we're we're probably a little late for 1910, but in 2004, what security features are you most interested in us getting on there? I can't guarantee that we'll we'll get those features in, but we'd love to hear from you. Like, what are you, what are you concerned about? What can we try to get on our um, on our roadmap to see if we can get it added into 2004 for you? So hit us up on Twitter. You know we're Ubuntu underscore sec, or you know send us uh, an email. Um, I'm Security Joe one word at canonical.com, um, or you can email Security at Ubuntu. That'll go to all of us. 
um, and let us know um, what you'd like to see in there, and we'll see if we can um, we we'll see if we can make it on the on the list. Yeah, or um, so I mentioned in uh, last week's podcast. There's also now the security section on discourse.ubuntu.com. Uh, so a great place to uh, bring up new suggestions and topics, and you know, a great sort of public forum to discuss this stuff. Okay. Thank you for the reminder. I totally forgot about that, which might explain why I haven't posted it yet. But I'll definitely jump on it after this call. <laughs> so, um, everybody, thank you again for listening. Um, if you're going to a UbuCon this week, have a blast there and say hey to uh, our other canonical compatriots who are there. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. All right. Uh, so lastly, the last thing I want to mention is uh, a bit of a response to uh, a video that uh, I'd seen earlier on YouTube, actually. And I'm not going to link to the video directly. However, it was claims around the Snap Store. And uh, we actually had it mentioned to us by a community member. So basically in this video, uh, there's uh, someone who is talking about Snaps in the Snap Store and how this compares to Flatpak and AppImage. And I'm not going to go into you know how these things compare directly or try to compare them. But uh, there was a claim made in the video that uh, the Snap Store is insecure because it is a single source uh, of uh, packages. And that if you can, um, say, do a DNS attack against someone and cause them to, say, go to an alternate Snap Store as a result without them knowing, you can get them to install you know, arbitrary packages or get them to install packages that are not the ones they want or malicious packages. And uh, so... On the face of it, that kind of sounds right, but no, that's not true at all. Uh, like apt, uh, you can't achieve this through just pointing someone at a different location. In the case of apt and our um, our Debian packages, our Deb packages, uh, these essentially are all signed. So there is a uh, DPG key that is stored securely, and that is used to sign uh, actually the release manifest for all of the packages. And so what happens is a hash of the package is generated and, and that is put in a list. Uh, that's the release file that gets downloaded by uh, apt. And that then is that release file is then signed. Uh, and so that when uh, apt goes to retrieve the latest list of packages, it can check uh, both that the list of packages has been signed and therefore that the hash of each package matches what is in the list. So for apt, we know this is safe. Even if you get pointed somewhere else, uh, assuming that they haven't been able to compromise the private signing key, you're not going to trust that list of packages that app downloads. And the same thing is true in the Snap Store. Now, while the Snap Store doesn't use DEBs, it uses Snaps. These have a similar um, public key-based signing mechanism, which are called assertions. And so for each Snap package, there is an assertion that is generated by the Snap Store, which is a digital signature, like the um, you know, GPG signature that's put on the app release file, uh, that allows SnapD, when it is downloading and installing packages, to uh, attest that that has come from a trusted source. And so even if you can you know, point someone at an alternate Snap Store, you can't actually get them to install packages that weren't uh, legitimately created by the real Snap Store because their local SnapD is not going to trust the, the packages they're downloading. They're not going to have valid assertions because those assertions won't have valid signatures. And so there's no way to subvert that as a single source. As I say, there might be other reasons you don't like the Snap Store, but in terms of security, uh, we can certainly say that the Snap Store is a uh, best of breed. All right, so that's it. Uh, end of my rant. Okay, uh, so as usual, that takes us to the end of the episode. If you want to get in touch with the Ubuntu security team, you can reach us at security at ubuntu.com. Or you can join us all in the Ubuntu Harden channel on the Freenode IRC network, irc.freenode.net, and uh, talk to us about anything security related, or Ubuntu security related in particular. 
Uh, or if you want to have a bit more of a longer lasting conversation, you can find, uh, you can reach everyone on the Ubuntu Harden mailing list. Uh, and finally, as I've mentioned previously, we now have the security section on uh, discourse.ubuntu.com. Uh, so if you want a, a more blingy way to interact with uh, the Ubuntu security community, I would urge you to check that out. And finally, if Twitter's more your thing, you can find us at Ubuntu underscore sec on Twitter. So thanks everyone for listening again for another week. Uh, remember, keep calm and enable automated upgrades, and I will speak to you again soon. Bye.